The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. In a minute, we'll get to hear from uh, one of my favorite people, Dr. Paul Lim, who has preached with us before, Friend, been a friend of mine for years, and uh, thankful to hear from him. Before that, uh, I want to read our scripture for us from 1 Peter. We're starting a new, uh, we just preached, I preached on Sunday about Peter and his life and his um, being restored by Jesus after denying Jesus three times. And not only does Peter have his life recorded, but we get to actually read letters from Peter to the church. And we're going to begin a new series today on that that Dr. Lim is going to preach from. This comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great delight to be back here at, at Christ Press Music Row. I think I was here about four weeks ago, and um, so it's awesome to be back. For those of you uh, whom I have not had a pleasure and privilege of meeting, um, I, so I serve at Christ Press as a, a scholar in residence. That's my part-time thing, and my full-time uh, work is just 200 yards down the road, straight down the road uh, at Vanderbilt. I've been there for the last 16 years uh, as a professor in the history of Christianity area. Um, every time I come and speak here, I feel like I'm in a sort of a blues, bluegrass or a country music songwriter night. And just the, the worship band is just really fantastic. And not only just aesthetically just beautiful, but also just really trans- transporting me here to the heavenlies as it were. And also just to see those two boys, Noah and Mac, they were, uh, they were wearing their Timbaland boots. I was thinking of my son who's a baseball player. He always wears his Tim, Timbalands to his, uh, every time he pitches. So I was, and he's been doing that since he was like seventh grader. I was like, well, you're getting them started really young. So that's, maybe they'll become baseball players or something like that. So anyway, uh, if, you were, uh, if you're okay, let's pray one more time and then we'll look to the word of God. Gracious God, we thank you for this time of encountering the risen Christ. As we have sung about that, as we have exchanged our greetings of uh, Christ is risen, that you will continue to work deeply within our lives to transform us, to transform this society, and to continue to work within us to your glory and to our great joy. As we have just heard the, the word read, and as we're about to explain it and proclaim it and embody it, May you receive all the joy and glory that you deserve. And may you edify and encourage your congregation gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So could I just remind us that Jesus is still alive. Um, Seeing that you're back here the Sunday after Easter means that you take your Christian journey pretty seriously. Um, I hope that the fact that Jesus, the statement that Jesus is alive is as real as the Easter eggs uh, your children are running after, or you yourselves are running after last weekend. For many Christians, however, even among those who uh, are self-styled, uh, who attend self-styled evangelical churches, um, 
many of us live as functional agnostics or atheists, meaning that on Sunday, sitting in our pews, we take seriously the reality of God, but then Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, we may forget whose we are, we may forget who we are, and get so wrapped up into asking one another the question about where do you work, what do you do, where do you go to school, where do you live, and forgetting that those secondary and tertiary identity badges are to remain as that, but in our failure we make them as primary, and forgetting our primary identity of belonging to the risen Christ. I say all of that because the person that we're going to talk about not only today, but for the next following few Sundays, I'll be preaching at Old Hickory next Sunday, is going through our series on First Peter. Peter is in many ways a spectacular person, spectacular failure as well as spectacularly restored person. Uh, for some in the Christian communion in the Roman Catholic Church, he's regarded as the first pope, and for many in the Protestant communion, he's often talked about as a spectacular failure and spectacular restored person, but not as the first pope. But nonetheless, a very pivotal figure, one of the OG three kind of biggies in the company of Jesus, Peter, James, I'm Chief Peter, John, and James. And so there you are. So, um, and the letter, just like the person who wrote it, is a straightforward, no-nonsense letter written to a group of Christians who are starting to ask the question as to whether it was and how it was worth it for them to follow Christ. Following Christ in the first century context, as Peter was writing his letter, meant, among others, that they're going to be kind of numerical minority and ideological minority. Most of them are living in the Roman Empire, kind of within the uh, kind of empirical jurisdiction. That meant that, among other things, that they would have this imperial cult that meant that they would would be encouraged and, and commanded to confess that Caesar is Lord. But as you may remember, that Christ is Lord, right? right? The, the statement that Christ is Lord is a very, very powerful theological and political statement. To call Jesus and not Caesar as Lord meant that you're going to bow your knees ultimately only to Jesus and not to any other ruler of this world. And that would have a tremendous implications in the way that Christian identity was formed and transformed. And we're beginning to see that really embodied in the life of Peter. Because Peter, when he was harassed by uh, the human authorities, he said, we should obey God rather than men. And so Peter was impetuous. Peter was influential. Peter made lots of mistakes, but Peter also made lots of converts. And so Peter was, among other things, uh, compared to his counterpart, Paul, Paul was sent to primarily to the Gentile kind of territory to convert people to the new way of Jesus Christ, whereas Peter was, so Paul was a Gentile kind of apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was seen as the apostle to the Jewish communities. And the five regions that we're going to be looking at, they are where a lot of um, kind of expat uh, Jewish community, diaspora Jews were living and Peter was really drawn to and committed to uh, talking about the good news of Jesus Christ to the exiled Jewish community. So let's, uh, we'll get right to that. So, so who is Peter? So we're going to look at, I want you to pay attention to this very short passage today. It's only two verses that are there. And what he's going to talk about is his identity. But he, he's going to be very, very interesting He's going to talk so little about himself, and he's going to talk a lot more about the community that he's concerned about, but most of all, he's going to talk about the God that, that his knee is bowing before, 
and these followers of Christ are also being desirous of learning about. So who was Peter? Peter was a messenger of Jesus Christ. So what is a messenger and who was Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but, you know, so the other thing that I like about coming here, well, I don't know if I like it, but uh, that always obvious when I come here is I feel old, whereas at Old Hickory, I feel kind of, that's my group, but like here, that's actually a good thing to be here. It's like, oh yeah, I used to be like you and younger and so, but so I'm a child of the 80s, right? So when I think about the word messenger, you know what comes to my mind? I think of bike messengers. So after college, I used to uh, live and work in New York for a couple of years. And in Manhattan, you'll see these bike messengers. And and so if you think about, so even as I was preparing this sermon about Peter being the apostle, and apostle in Greek means, in English means messenger. Bike, so I was thinking about these bike messengers. You know, I I, I saw one spectacular uh, and potentially horrifying scene, but it just turned out to be spectacular and horrifying. I saw a bike messenger get hit by a car that was opening the door. You know what I mean? They open the door and then bike messenger hits the car and then flies over. And I'm just witnessing it. He falls and then he's like, and everyone's like horrified. Like what happened? Shock of all shocks that he actually survived. Like totally intact and more interesting and more spectacular yet. The bike was okay. I, was, I wanted to ask him like, what kind of bike is that? Because after the fall, both the messenger and the bike were okay. And then he says, I'm good, I'm good. And you know what the messenger really wanted to do? Guess what? He wanted to get going. He wanted to finish his project or complete the assignment. Messengers are like that. The apostle, Peter, he says, I'm an apostle. That means I'm a messenger. Messengers are concerned about and committed to just one thing, is to finish the task. So what is the task? What is the task of an apostle? The apostle is to tell people about the, the message and the one who is sending the message. So that is, the message is that of reconciliation possible in God through Jesus Christ. That no matter where you are in the Roman Empire, your ultimate Lord, curious, the Greek word, is that not Caesar but Christ. That it is also furthermore that you have this peace and love and hope and faith given as a gift from God through Jesus Christ. That is the messenger. That, that is that, that the, the thing, no matter how many times Peter fell over or his bike was kind of whatever, his primary concern and commitment was that the intended recipients will get the message uncorrupted and unsullied so that as a result there will be a redirection and reorientation of their lives and perspectives who receive that. That's the messenger. What about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, that is around this time period and even today, both simple and complicated. Simple and complicated simultaneously. Simple in that many who heard the message of Jesus Christ received him as Lord and Savior and their lives are transformed and, and, and so on and so forth. Complicated in that there are some others who said, you know what, I don't believe that. I don't know how I can believe it. I wasn't there to see it. And it happened 2,000 years ago for us, for many, and therefore they find that kind of a complicated thing. Well, that was, there were also people like that in the first century. There are also people who are like that because when you think about the number of people who be, became Christians in the very beginning, it was a tiny minority, numerical minority, compared to the numerical majority of people who didn't embrace the message, starting with the Jews and later on to the Gentile. So then we have to ask the question, why this thing is going on? So, it is, so the identity of Jesus is obviously going to be simultaneously simple and complicated. 
For some, it's a simple message of Jesus. They didn't question it. They embraced it, accepted it. They experienced their lives transformed. For others, it's a complicated mess, hot mess, as they say in the South, that I don't know how to believe this. I don't, I don't get it. And so there is that. So for the rest of our time, let's consider Peter's apostleship. And uh, you, you're in for a special treat. I normally have three points to the sermon. There will only be two today, okay? So uh, because the three baptisms you have, so they got the three right there. So we're going to consider the horizontal and the vertical dimensionality of Peter's apostleship. So ver- horizontal, meaning that he's going to talk about the people that, who are receiving this message. And then vertical, referring to none other than God. So then let's look at the horizontal aspect of Peter's apostleship. So as you have, uh, if you have your phones or actual Bibles, you can turn to it. Um, so this region that he's going to be sending, he sends this letter, and he's addressing this letter to these uh, people in five different regions of the ancient world, in the Mediterranean world. They are in Pontus, they're in Bithynia, they're in Galatia, they're in Cappadocia, and then they're in Asia. So you may be familiar at least with two of those words, yes? I think you're familiar with Galatia because Galatia is, we read about them in Galatians, right? And second, someone misleadingly, we're familiar with Asia. What Peter is referring to in Asia is not, is not what you may be thinking of Asia when it comes to India, Singapore, Vietnam, China, Korea, and whatnot. No, he's referring to Asia Minor. So all these places are actually contiguous to one another. If you can imagine about 50 miles northwest of Syria. So this is about, mm, about 100 miles from Jerusalem. So then it's a pretty, it's a good three-day trip, maybe, you know, five-day trip walking-wise. And there are these kind of diaspora Jewish communities that have been spread as parts of the expansion of the Roman Empire. So I think because of the exile experience, um, after the kingdoms collapsed, both southern and northern kingdom of Israel and Judea, then Judah, then, that meant that they began to be dispersed all over, all over in the Mediterranean, in the, in the Babylonian Empire, now with Roman Empire. They're still living there. They're still doing commerce. They're doing business. They're making babies. They're make, getting them circumcised. They're getting them baptized. They're doing work, doing life together. They happen to be in these five regions, and Peter realized that there are people, Jewish people, living in these places whose lives are transformed when they heard that the promises of God, God of Israel, God's promises about sending the Messiah, has been fulfilled in this person of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says, I'm going to be the bike messenger par excellence for this message. And he heard that there are people living there, and he's writing to them. He's writing to them to really encourage them to really empower them, to really help them to endure the things that they're going through. So I want you to really think about these two words. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon today, I want you to try to remember these two words, and that's going to be the key to my message. One is elect. The other is exile. Elect and exile. When you think about these two words, do they resonate with you? Do they describe you in any way? Elect and exile. Yeah, okay, and somebody was nodding. That's, that's more, one more than what I had in the first service. So, okay, right. Great, I'm glad you resonate. Okay, what about that resonates with you? Yeah, you nodded very vigorously. So, 
And it's not a rhetorical question. Can I ask you? Is that okay? Yeah. Ah, do you feel that? Okay, great. All right, great. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So there are two parts of the Christian identity as envisioned by Peter are these two things, elect and exile. We, many of us, either identify with none of it or identify with one of it, one of the two, and maybe sometimes both of those. Elect means something positive. That means God has a special hand on you. God chose you. God chose you and not others. So there is a privilege there. You get handpicked by God, okay? And we're going to say more about that and fair, unfair, all that, right? But, but God says, okay, Peter says, hey, you all living in Pontus, Bithynia, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, and, and Asia, I want you to know that you're elect. That means God has a special purpose in your life. That really means like, oh, wow, I feel special. Yes. What about exile? Exile means that bad things are happening. This is not your home, that you think you're home, but you're not, because so many things around you are telling you that you don't belong, right? And there's a very ironic and intentional juxtaposition of the two, putting together one on the one hand, elect, that means things are great. You have three kids who are baptized today. That's more than three than most people get to the service. It's a great day for the Stevenson family. So you feel like, oh, we're part of the elect family. But then at the same time, let's say as you do your life together, those two base, you know, rocking their Tims or they're going to go through a lot of troubles. And they're like, okay, are you sure we're part of the elect community? And we feel like we're exiled. You see, that's part of my journey. That's part of your journey. If you're honest about your own Christian journeys, respective individually, there are days when you feel like elect. There are days when you feel like you're a part of the exile. But Peter says, not either or. It's both and. God's got hand in you. And God says, okay, I want you to really think about your identity as your beloved, therefore you belong. But at the same time, in your life here and now, you're going to, this is, and Peter reminds his readers again and again, you're not home yet. This is not your home. But then to the extent that we want to make this our home, that's going to create greater and greater dissonance. To the extent that you feel like this has to be my final destination, that's going to make you feel like, no, you're not. I mean, imagine, imagine you're trying to get to, I don't know, um, Athens, Greece, okay? And you want to, you're flying there from Nashville. That means you can probably do, among others, like you can fly direct from here, Nashville to Heathrow, London Heathrow, and then from London Heathrow to Greece. But then let's say that's your goal, okay? But you go to London Heathrow and you say, well, this is, this is my destination. No, you're not. And let's say you say, I'm so comfortable here, I'm going to actually pretend that London is Athens. Well, among other things, I mean, it's not. I mean, that's, that's a categoric mistake. And so many of us live like that. So many of us, according to Peter, so many of us think that London is Athens, and we're going to try to feel as much at home as possible. And Peter is going to remind the readers, no, 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 no. You can try all you want, but you're going to not feel ultimately at home because this is not meant to be your final destination. So more to say on that. So, okay. So that means part of the elect means God knows what he's doing. God chose these people not because they were more deserving or numerous or because of their future foreseen good deeds. There is a sense of mystery about these, the predestination. God chose some and didn't choose others. 
Is it easy for me to talk about that as a preacher? Absolutely not. Because for all of us in living in 2023, we believe in universal inclusion. We believe everyone should belong. And so this, this message doesn't sit well. And I understand that. I teach at a major secular university, and to talk about particularism over universalism is not a welcome message. But what does that mean? So we're going to have more to say about that and next Sunday. I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to, that's your job, Stacy, and you can <laughs> carry on. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to carry the message over at Christ Christ's Old Hickory, so I, I, I don't get away from predestination. But, but why would you? I mean, it's a challenging message to say some are included and not, not everybody else. Why would you do that? I think this is what Peter is doing. Peter knows that his group of people, these new Christians, are having a real hard time. Hard time because of the imperial sanction against many Christians. So FYI, if you're living in a first century Rome or Roman Empire, and if you're a Jewish person, you get imperial exception or exemption. You're not going to be part of the group that's going to be like harassed for religious objections. But these weirdos called Christians, they're cannibals. You know why they're called cannibals? Because we are going to eat the body and eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. Does that sound sane to you? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, when I first became a Christian as a junior in college, somebody said to me, are you covered in the blood of Jesus? I found the language totally, what? No, I'm not. I mean, like, being covered, and we're going to talk about what it means to be covered with the blood of Jesus, but... A preacher said in our campus meeting, like, are you covered in the blood of Jesus? I said, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. And somebody said, are you, and there are all these Christianese, right? We're going to raise an Ebenezer. I was like, well, the only Ebenezer I know is Ebenezer Scrooge. What is Ebenezer? Ebenezer means like stone of help. So a lot of this inner, inner Christian language to call, I mean, they were called cannibals, and they're also called incestuous. You know why? Because Christians will call one another, you're my brother and my sister. So to the Roman outsiders, Christians were weirdos, losers, numerical minority. They weren't powerful. So when you think about how Christianity became the religion of the empire, it really is a powerful transposition. But in the beginning, as Peter is writing this letter, they were part of the weird group, loser group, you know, despised group, people looking at them with lots of suspicion. And so we, do not forget that. That's why he's writing what he's doing. He's saying, look, the world doesn't think you're part of the cool crowd. The world thinks that you're losers. The world thinks that you're rejected ones. But I want you to know. I want you to know that in the infinite and all wise and all merciful eyes of God and plan of God, you are loved from before eternity passed. Before anything came to be, he had you. You know that movie, Jerry Maguire, you know, where it's like, oh, you had me at hello, right? Well, God had you at eternity. Before anything at all came to be, before you did anything, God had you in God's mind. God embraced you. God chose you. And now you're living in this world, even though you're maligned and misunderstood and caricaturized and persecuted, Peter says. But I want you to know that in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of the Roman Empire and the citizens and the powers, powerful and pompous people, but in the eyes of the infinite God and all merciful and mighty God, God knows you. You're part of the elect. Does that make sense? So Peter uses the doctrine of predestination in a pastoral way. He's addressing a group, a group of people who feel totally you know, marginalized and minoritized and maligned and feels like we're absolute losers. Peter says, okay, you may be a loser in their eyes, 
but I want you to know that you already have a belonging. What about exiles? You know, the, with exile, that language of exile is something that many of us may not be familiar with. But did you know that we have a really significant refugee communities here in Nashville? That means we have an opportunity, and one of the things that I do as part of my, my calling here in Nashville is I'm involved for the last seven years with the National Institute for Faith and Work. And I do the teaching there, and one of the things that I really love about it is one of the graduates, uh, she and her husband are involved with the Siloam Clinic, which is really kind of committed to working with the refugee population, providing the medical care for indigent, and so on. So the word exile means you don't belong in this community as part of your native right. But you're from somewhere else, and, and it is really intriguing. Peter is going to use that intentional language of your strangers and aliens and exiles to tell the Christians, look, you don't belong here. You do, but you don't. So I want you to really think about what you, where it is that you ultimately belong. I want you to really think about that because to talk about you know, being exiles means there's fear, there's vulnerability, there's transience. But the question becomes, if God knew precisely what he was doing, why would you make them exiles? And I think you have to ask that question. God, you're all loving and all powerful. Why, why would you make our life here so miserable? And that's been the kind of question of a lot of people for the last 2,000 years. Well, let's be honest, for the last three weeks, Nashville community has been asking that question. I've spoken at Covenant Presbyterian Church at least seven times in the last three years. Um, I have been, um, and I live about two minutes away from Covenant Press. Our son is a high school senior, drives past Covenant Press every day on the way to and on the way back from school, right? So it is, and our community has been just really been asking that question of God's love and purposes. Did God not know what was happening? God did. Did God then take a leave of absence for that morning? No. Then how do we square that circle of predestination and human evil? One of the ways to think about it is this. For many sensible American reformed evangelicals, we only think of one force at work in our world. One force is the power of God. For Peter, he knows that there is another force at work, that there are so many diabolical forces in the world that are standing against the shalom of God. Israel knew that Israel had lots of enemies. But for many of us, we think of only the power of God. There is also the power of devil that is powerfully at work. Peter would say that your enemy, the devil, is like what? A roaring lion ready to devour you. That means there is, there's war going on right now, battles that are going on right now that are not visible to us, though not, though not invisible to God. That God is involved, and it may seem like God is losing, because in the, in the years of history, in the annals of history, it might look as if God is on the losing side. But when we look at the scripture, when we look at history from a biblical perspective, starting with Genesis 1 and ending with Revelation 22, there is going to be that ultimate victory of God. And God has promised that already in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Because what Peter is saying is that you're part of the exile because you're with Jesus. So if you're a first century Roman citizen who was kind of interested in Christianity, one of the most off-putting things about Christianity is the founder. You know why? It's not because it's Jewish. No, although there's plenty of Roman anti-Semitism to go around. One of the most off-putting things about Christianity was the founder's way of dying. You know how he died, right? Do you know how he died? 
not a trick question. Uh, right there, crucifixion. You know, to a, a respectable Roman citizen, this is the last way you want to die. To a respectable Nashville citizen, the last way you want to die is to die in, in um, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, a place that I go and teach and learn every three semesters. One of my most delightful things and profound things of my teaching experience at Vanderbilt is to teach at Riverbend and teach on death row every three semesters. You might think that people on death row do not look like you, are most like they're morally totally bankrupt, and, and I used to think that until I started going and teaching and hanging out with these. They're not that different from me or you. Some of them went to grad school, some of them were medical doctors, some of them went, were, you know, and, and I, I'm not gonna tell you all that, but, like, but when I hear their stories, I'm like, wow, to get from there to here. Then my conclusion is, except for the grace of God, except for the grace of God, go I. So, Jesus was executed as a Roman citizen. That means, you know what? Crucifixion is Rome's best way to flex his muscles of power because these Roman executions called crucifixions did not occur in some hinterland parks. They almost always occurred in major thoroughfares. So imagine going down to 9th and Broadway, and we're going to see three crucifixions happen. That means this Rome is saying, look, don't mess with us, because if you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to you. So for a Roman citizen, one of the major hindrances of becoming a Christian is that it seems like an absolute loser religion. They're going to talk about the crucifix as a symbol of God's power, Yes, and precisely that's divine irony and paradox of the crucifixion of Jesus. God chose the most humiliating way of dying. God chose the most embarrassing way to leave this earth, that is crucifixion. God chose that. Did you know that? It wasn't by accident. It wasn't that Jesus could not fight over the authorities. God said, I'm going to appoint that way, that way to show something about my identity my trajectory, my journey in this universe. God sent Jesus Christ to die the most shameful, ignominious death. Jesus became exile for us. He didn't have to be an exile. He became voluntary exile for us and for our salvation so that he wants to show, he wants you to know that you're elect. Ah, but ah, that's not it. You're also exile. But when you feel like you're only an exile, God says, ah, no, 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 that's not all there is. You're also elect. Because in your Christian journey, in your journey of life, there will be some days when you feel like an exile. God reminds you, no, you're also elect. And God will, and in your journey of life, you may have some days that you're going to feel like, I'm elect. God's going to remind you, ah, but you have to change the baby's diaper. You know what I mean? Like, so she's a beautiful, I mean, what a great name, Letty, right? But like, Letty's going to grow, she's going to poo sometime. I mean, maybe once a week, I don't know. She's a great baby, but you see what I mean? On the day that she poops, that's a reminder for mom and dad that, oh, we are exiles. But most days, you feel like, oh, we're part of the elect crowd. And all kidding aside for all of us, seriously, friends, you're going to go back and forth. And I want you to remember those two words. What are they? Elect and exile. Because that really marks out the Christian journey in many poignant ways. So then Peter's message is, your situation is not a freak accident. Your situation is not, it's not static, but it's dynamic. That it's the Spirit of God is continuing to mess about with your life to transform you. And then thirdly, your security is unquestionable. 
So then quickly, uh, let's move to the vertical aspect, to Peter's apostleship. Vertical aspect. How does he describe God? Remember, he spent very little time talking about who he is. I'm a messenger boy. But then he spent some time talking about the recipients of this letter. And then now he's going to spend lots of time talking about the vertical aspect, the, the, person, the persons who sent him. He's going to talk about God the Father. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ. Guess what you have just heard there? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter does not stop there and says, he, see, this is my Trinitarian theology. He doesn't do that, but what is really clear around this time period is that people who have encountered Jesus are beginning to raise questions in a good way about the identity of God. Because both, see, Peter is writing to a group of Jewish um, kind of expats or uh, diaspora Jews who are monotheists. That means they believed in one God. But then they're also beginning to have some fresh questions about God's identity in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus claimed something like this. Jesus said that I and the Father are one. That sounds kind of crazy, because how can you, a mere mortal, can claim that I and the Father are one? Jesus also said, before Abraham was, I am. And then, you know, what people's response was, they picked up stones to stone him. It's not because of grammatical incorrectness, let me remind us. But what was contained in that statement is before Abram was, I already pre-existed. That means that he was claiming to be someone more than just a mortal person. That's why the response of the Jewish community was a right one. You do have to tell the person who's claiming to be God who is not with the response of stone. I mean, so all of and the gospel writer John, he begins his fantastic gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do you understand that? In the beginning was a word, and word was with God, and word was God. In the beginning was Paul, and Paul was with Mickey, and Paul was Mickey. Mickey's my wife. I mean, does that make sense? Like, how can I be my wife? And, and yet, what the writer's trying to grapple with is this, this real irony of the identity of God. Who is this word? Because John will say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that John will say, we have beheld the glory of the invisible God in the enfleshed one of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of John is going to talk less about the, the exile identity of Jesus. He's going to take, talk, talk more about the elect identity of Jesus. But nonetheless, there is both there. And so they're beginning to really kind of grapple with this trinit, emerging Trinitarian identity of God or theology there. So who is the Father then? Let's look at the language. We have already talked about that. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who knows. God knows all things. God knows all things and God is involved in all things. God knows and chooses options and possibilities in our life. God is not a tyrant, but there is a mystery of how God's sovereignty is maintained in our exercise of freedom. Right? So, for example, you might believe in, and I hope you do believe in, the sovereignty of God. So, to believe in the sovereignty of God means God knows what he's doing. I mean, that's what it means. To believe in predestination means that God knows what he's doing and I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. Do I know what I'm doing right now? I hope so. You hope so, right? But then, I do and I don't. I mean, like, do I know what I'm doing with my life? Yeah, but I don't. Because I don't know what I'm going to be doing in 10 years' life. 10 years of my life. I, I think I do, but I don't know for sure. These assumptions we make about, and do you realize this? The only thing you have as a, and for sure is that moment we have right now. 
I don't mean to sound morbid, but I mean, like, you know, like, I, yeah, I mean, we only have today. The only day we have for sure is today. And maybe that. Maybe you won't see the end of the day. So that means more than anything else, we think we know, but we don't. We think God doesn't, but God does. Let me say that again. You think you know what's going on, you don't. You think God doesn't know what's going on, but God does. So then we're going to have this tension. We're going to have this kind of push and pull between you and God. You're going to say, God, you don't know Jack. And God's going to say, Jack, I know. <laughs> and Jane, perhaps, you know, you don't know Jane, but Jane, I know, I know what I'm doing. And so then, then what God's going to tell you throughout the liturgy of worship every time is, hey, Cade, hey, Jane, I want you to trust me. See, life is about whom you trust. Who do you really trust in life? I've come to realize that I cannot trust me. I cannot trust myself to make the right decision about my family. I mean, it's not that I'm deranged, but yeah, but then I don't, you see what I mean? I, I don't want you to think that Paul must be a horrible person. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but. You think I'm terrible, but not really, but. You think I'm wonderful, no, not really, but. And there's always going to be the ambiguity of our life existence. And so it is about trust. What worship does here in the broken body of Jesus and, and shed blood of Christ, what this tells you is that this is what you can trust. This body broken and bloodshed is the ultimate identity giver and transformer of your life. Because Father knows, Father sends, and the Holy Spirit's work is this. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. That means more than anything else, the way that God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifies us is to He refashions us to be more and more like Jesus. That means Christians are imitators. Christians are to be imitated. All people imitate things, you know that, right? And when I was younger, uh, when I was in high school, I used to imitate, some of you may remember Fonzie, remember Fonzie, Henry Winkler? I used to want to be like Fonzie. Uh, you can say I'm crazy, but like, he, to me, it was the epitome of coolness. With the white t-shirt and jeans, I'm somebody like, yeah, I like it. I'm glad. Right there, similar age group. Yeah, Fonzie was the epitome of cool. I wanted to be like cool. But then I then found another kind of cool thing in my, because I was always trying new things. Then I fell in love with hip-hop or rap music. Run DMC was really cool. And I wanted to, like, listen to Run DMC. You know, you talk, all these songs you talk too much or walk this way and all that. Like, I was like, yeah, I want to wear, like, you know, Kangol hats and want to be like... Run DMC, that phase lasted about a couple of years, and I went to college, and then all of a sudden I'm into J. Crew or L. Bean Dog Boots, and so all that to say that I tried all of these phases of my life. And you do that too, right? I mean, like, you know what I mean? You probably imitate somebody, and, and um, as, as our deaconess friend was talking about this coming uh, concert of, um, what's her name? Uh, Taylor Swift, yes, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I... I, I um, Yes, her, right. So. I think she's great. I think I, I, I sat next to her at a, at a coffee shop without knowing it was he. And my graduate student is like, did you? And he was cool enough to say, after we walked, I was like, hey, you know who you were sitting next to? I said, no. Like, you know, Taylor Swift is like, yeah, I've heard of her. And, and I, became her music, I became a fan of her music later on. So anyway, um, so we imitate different people. I mean, you know, Taylor Swift fans are going to dress like Taylor Swift and sing her songs. And, but the Holy Spirit is telling us, look, you should imitate Jesus more than anyone else. Forget Run DMC, forget Henry Winkler, forget Taylor Swift, forget, I don't know, LeBron James. Imitate Jesus. 
Then we have to ask the question, who is Jesus? Above all, he says, he's the one whom you should obey. He's your Lord. He's your shepherd. He's the one who takes your place. He's the one who says, you know what? Stop trying. Stop trying. I became a Christian as a junior in college. And the message to me, the gospel message of Jesus Christ to me was, stop trying. It's all good. I'm going to accept you the way you are. And your identity is always going to be in me. It was less about forgiveness of sins. It was more about just jumping through so many of these hoops so that I can be someone who's acceptable. And the message says, you know what? You are already accepted. My body is already broken for you. My blood is already shed for you. That is your foundational identity. So friends, let's finish with this. Elect and exile. Those two words. Those two foundational realities of one's life. You're going to have days when you feel more like an exile. You may have some other days when you feel more like an elect. And on those days, remember the other. On the days that you feel like an elect person, think of the exile. When you think you're an exile, think of your elect. Because in so doing, what you're doing is you're imitating Christ. Because he is a chosen one of God. He's the only beloved son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, elect of all elects. Yet he became exile for us and for our salvation. So that we feeling like, like exiles will know and will have that conviction that we're part of the beloved one so that we will be transformed. And in our doing so, what we will do is we'll seek to bring others into that community. Because you know what? The ultimate knowledge of predestination is, doesn't reside with you or me. As Augustine of Hippo, a fourth century Christian said, he said, you know what? I'm going to always assume that people are Christians until proven otherwise. That means there is a ben- benefit of the doubt that is extended. And I hope that, that as uh, Christ Press Music Row continues to do its ministry, it's going to keep its doors wide open. As I said earlier, people with the green lanyards, you have a huge ministry here because how you say hello to people walking in tells you a lot about what kind of community this is, a welcoming and embracing community that will say Jesus is the Lord of all. You may feel like an exile, but you are elect here. You may feel like only an elect. Let me remind you, do community with us, and we'll show you what it means to be exiled here in this world so that we think of and dream of and make, make true the beautiful tomorrow that God is designing for all of us with tears and shadows of doubt that are among us nonetheless. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this day that as our community is coming to really not forget about, but not just move on, but do life amid so many cries and deaths and tears and doubts. Lord, thank you for the gift of life today. We have for sure, we have this moment. Not to delve too morbid, but Lord, may we know that all of our days are numbered perfectly into your book. And we don't, we don't get to peer into the book, so we live trusting you. Lord, we thank you for the new beginnings of these three uh, children who are baptized today, that as they are part of the covenant community, may this church continue to raise them and love them and love on them so that they may be lovers of others to bring to them, to you, the wonderful community of new people who identify with Christ. 
Thank you for what we are about to do, that is to receive the joyful supper of the Lord. May we do so with gratitude and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.